this work that I'm working on right now is a new book that I'll be writing this winter. Um, so you're some of the first to hear about it. I've just come back from um, a trip around Europe where I've been briefing at various different um, national capitals the conclusions of the book, but it's not yet written. So I have to sit down and write it this winter, and you're one of the first American audiences to hear it, so I'm particularly interested in your feedback. Um, with no further ado, I'll just jump in. The book is about violence, and I got interested in this topic in 1992 when I was living in St. Petersburg, Russia. I happened to be working right above the biggest mafia casino in Russia, and um, throughout the course of the winter and the spring, more and more mafiosos were um, coming and burning kiosks right around our offices um, if the kiosks hadn't paid protection money. And they ended up kidnapping two of my colleagues because they assumed that all Americans were wealthy and that if we weren't giving them protection money, we were just withholding money. They didn't realize we were all just students who didn't have any money to begin with. And so this was my daily sight walking to work. And it made me think about the new forms of violence that the wor world was facing and what we could do about them. This was an era when NATO hadn't expanded yet, when it was really unclear what you did about this sort of transnational problem. And then I went to work in India. And in India, I was working on microfinance. I was interested in development work and ended up in a village in eastern Uttar Pradesh where a girl had just been raped by the son of, of the um, local landlord. She was a low-caste girl. And this is very common in India, unfortunately, that the caste hierarchy is held up by that kind of um, power act. And so the rape was pretty common. What was uncommon was that the girl's brother went to confront the landlord's son and basically wanted to say, how dare you do this to my sister? And the landlord's son took the boy's hand and put it through a wheat thresher. And it was his right hand, so he could never work again. And I came to this village not too long after that, and we were pushing our microfinance program, and I thought, how can you do development work where we're trying to break the hold of this landlord on the labor market in this area and let people have entrepreneurship, let them have another kind of life, if that's the consequences, if violence is the consequences, and if these people know they have impunity because the police forces are bought, the politicians are bought, nobody is going to um, prosecute this landlord's son. And that's what got me interested in this set of topics. So I started to think about how do really violent places get better? And it, it turns out that there's almost no work on this, that most of the research in our field looks at interventions. So the World Bank goes in and does something, or USAID goes in and does something. We study whether it works, and that's that. But nobody had really looked at places that had been really bad and got better and what happened and how they got better. So I set out to do that. And the, the book looks at democracies, because autocracies have different issues, very weak democracies usually. I'm looking for places that were quite bad, not places that were a little bad and got better because the really bad levels of violence have a different kind of dynamic to them. And um, I was looking for significant movement and sustainability. And so with that, I'm going to jump right in. The, the work is based on a series of case studies that I went around the world looking at last year. And I can talk about those cases, where the conclusions come from, the literature, but I'm, because there's a lot to present from this empirical work, I just want to jump in and present it. You should know that the cases came from almost every continent. So Colombia, Georgia, Ghana, Sicily, and the Mafia. I also looked at the United States in the 1880s, right after our Civil War, and the violence issues that we had going on at that time period um, in Bihar and India. And across the, the case studies, what I found was that when you have a lot of violence, you have two reasons for it, and only two. One is you don't have a state, right? So you have a lot of warlords fighting to become the state. So this is Somalia. This is Libya right now. This is Georgia in 1992 when the Soviet Union had fallen apart. When you have no state, people with guns start coming in to try to figure out who's going to win the control of the state. The other way you get a lot of violence is state collusion. So this is when the state is somehow protecting the violent actors. It could be parties, political parties are protecting them. It could be parts of government. It could be that they've um, connived their way into the security apparatus. But somebody in power is protecting them, and that's why it's so hard to root out the violence. And this leads to one of the first conclusions of the book, which is if it looks like you have a state and there's still a lot of violence, and you can think of some of those Central American countries right now that have some of the highest murder rates in the world, you've got to look for state collusion. You can't treat the state as a neutral actor. 
Um, let's take the first cause. This is Somalia. There is no state. How do you get out of that kind of a situation? Well, in Georgia, the way they got out of that situation, and it held true in all of the other countries, was by buying off the bad actors. And I was really uncomfortable with this conclusion, and I don't know how I'm going to write it up in the book, to be honest, because from a normative level, I don't like it. Um, from an empirical level, it's what I found. What I found was that in every case where you had no state and you needed to get out of that, that level of violence, you needed to give the bad guys a reason to put down their arms. And the reasons were twofold. The reasons were either there are better opportunities that can be made from corruption within the state, or we'll give you impunity for past wrongs. Just put down your arms and you won't get prosecuted. And you see these again and again and again. So in Georgia, these guys are... Um, Jabba Yosalani and Kitovani. And they were the two warlords that basically divvied up Georgia between them. And they were just wreaking havoc on the country in the early 90s. There was a civil war. There was separatist wars in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. There were thugs who were allied with various militias that were trying to ally with these guys. So if you were a 19-year-old boy, you donned a leather jacket, you picked up a Kalashnikov, and you were on some level connected with one of these two guys within these structures um, of militia movements. And they decided that they needed a better front than that because they couldn't get any foreign aid um, as warlords. They weren't really getting taken seriously in the international world. And so they invited Shevardnadze back in, who had been the former foreign minister of the Soviet Union and had a lot of international credibility. And Shevardnadze sat on top of this hierarchy that these guys really ran. And in my interviews, I interviewed a bunch of the former um, soldiers in the Civil War who had fled to the edges of Georgia and I interviewed um, people who were working in the National Security Council at this point, and they talk about this just embarrassing situation where Shevard Nadza, who was known as the Silver Fox, he was this very um, good-looking older guy who was also very wily, would just be rubber-stamping stuff that these two warlords wanted. And in one National Security Council meeting, the two warlords had their militias fighting one another, and he basically said, look, this meeting's not going to continue until you get your guys to stop shooting each other in the capital. And... They stopped the meeting. I mean, it was like saying, you know, well, I'm not going to drive any further, kids, until you stop fighting in the back of the car. Stopped the meeting. Those guys dealt with their people, and they came back. Well, how did you get out of that situation? What Shevard Nadza did was he gave one of them the army, and he gave the other one the police. And one started to smuggle cigarettes and petrol, and the other smuggled other goods. And that actually brought a good deal of peace. It didn't last. And you see this in the other case studies. I can walk you through all the case studies. It didn't last. So what I found was that that was the only way to bring peace, that kind of elite bargain, the only way to bring peace, when you had such a weak hand, such a weak state, that you had no other cards to play. But it doesn't last for very long. Because when you bring peace that way, you delegitimize your state. And the corruption makes everyone very upset with your state, and you become a state that has um, lost the will of the people to support your own state, and you end up in this vicious cycle, this whirlpool, in which you fall into the other problem of violence, which is that the state becomes collusive with the violence. So in that case, it's very clear, right? You've got your police and your, your army who are actually your main criminal actors. In the other cases, like in Bihar, you had Natish Kumar come in. He was elected. He was a chief minister of the state. He was elected on a platform of law and order. The state had just been taken over by um, violence, by people driving around with guns hanging out of their cars, by extortion, by kidnapping. People were scared. Nobody went out at night, so the economy was falling apart. And Tish Kumar comes in, and he runs on this platform that says, I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to clean this state up. And the way he does it is he starts working with the law enforcement to get better. He starts working with the courts to get better. But then he goes to the biggest warlords who are controlling these extortion rings, these kidnapping rings, and he says, look, if you, put down your, if you don't put down your arms, I'm going to put you in jail. If you do put down your arms, I'm going to give you some lucrative state contracts for roads and construction that I'm building around the state. And that was a pretty good offer, and a lot of them put down their arms. Some of the rest went to jail, and his state started functioning, and Bihar started growing, and the development story there is really positive. The problem is... When your state is collusive with the violence, then the violent actors get used to having some level of state protection. In India, one of my colleagues is writing a book that's all held up by libel law issues right now that talks about the level of criminality in India's political class, and it's sky high. Having read the manuscript, I don't know if it'll ever come to light for anybody else to read because of the, the libel laws in India, but 
um, really big problems there of this exact problem. What do you do when that happens? For those of you who might have served in Afghanistan, this is the situation in Afghanistan, right? You've got these problems of a state that has lost the legitimacy of its people. One of the things that happens in that case, and it happened in every single case study I looked at, is that when the state loses legitimacy, who gets that legitimacy? The Taliban steps in and starts saying, hey, we can offer judicial services that the state does in a crooked way. You get drug cartels that step in and say, hey, we can protect you. The police are thugs. We're on your side. We're in your neighborhood. Gangs step in. And so what you get are all of these illicit actors that to the outsiders, you think, how in the world can you have public support for a major drug cartel? But to people in the neighborhood, they say, look, the police are brutal and illegitimate, and I don't trust them at all. At least I know the drug cartel. They're kids from the neighborhood, and I can trust them with certain things. I know where their lines are. And so then you have a real problem, because this is actually a much worse situation than this. This looks worse, but it's easier to clean up. This, the very parts of government that are in intended to clean up the problem are collusive with the problem. And if you're an international actor and you're trying to do something, what do you do? Do you help build the police? Well, they're working with the drug cartels. In Colombia, the Air Force was known as the Blue Cartel. They did things like stuff the presidential plane with drugs and fly it to America on a presidential um, visit. A great, brilliant way to move drugs into America. Um, the bad guys start doing more and more things to build public support. So in Colombia, for instance, this is Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel kingpin's housing project. He built a whole neighborhood of housing for the poor. Um, again and again and again, you see this, that the bad guys, the illicit actors, the paramilitaries, start doing Robin Hood-like things. And it wins them the allegiance of their people. And then it's much harder. As a foreign actor, you come in and you say, we're going to help the state build itself back up. But the state is illegitimate. You're fighting these people who are seen as legitimate. And actually, as an outsider, you start getting painted with the brush of illegitimacy that the state has. It's a real problem. It's a problem we're facing right now in many places, including Afghanistan. So what do you do in that kind of situation? How does it get better? And this is really where my book um, gets exciting and gets really interesting for me because it's really easy to admire a problem like this and say, wow, that's a really, really bad problem. Much harder to figure out what you do about it. But these case studies were chosen because they got better. One thing you do, if you have a state that wants to be legitimate, you have to roll out the states. You need more state. So in America in the 1880s in the West, the population settled before the state got there. And you didn't have a problem in the West of an illegitimate state you had a problem of just not enough state. So this is Judge Roy Bean, who's a very famous hanging judge um, in the West. And gradually, America rolled itself out into the West and brought police and brought um, law and order. Different story if the state is illegitimate. If the state's illegitimate, you can't do that as easily. And I would argue that in the American South at that time, the northern United States was seen as illegitimate, and you had a lot of insurgent action going on. You had a lot of problems in the American South because the northern occupiers who won the Civil War were seen as illegitimate. So rolling out the state actually did not result in greater law and order in the South. Instead, you got insurgency, right? You got lynchings in the South. Lynchings just skyrocketed in the 1890s because the people who lived there saw the state as illegitimate, and you had real law and order problems, and there was a lot of corruption in the Reconstruction Administration. Same exact things you're seeing in places like Afghanistan. So what do you do if the state's illegitimate? And you can't just roll out the state, because rolling out the state actually brings this illegitimate actor more in contact with the people who then can find out just how illegitimate it is, right? If you've got a corrupt state, and you bring the courts to people, and they say, wow, I thought the state was corrupt, but now I can really see just how corrupt it is, that fuels insurgency. So I wrote a paper a while back about Afghanistan with a friend of mine who worked in um, a particularly dangerous province which was sending um, young boys to six different insurgent groups. And one of the things they did was a cultural change program. And so if states are really bad and you can't work with the state, one thing you can do is start working within the culture to change the ideas of violence. And this particular program worked with the ideas of manhood and said, hey, Manhood has been defined as carrying a gun and shooting people and beating your wife and doing various things that we would rather um, not happen. What if we redefined masculinity as keeping it together and 
being in control of yourself and being a pillar in your community who was so in control that you didn't have to use violence to solve your problems. And they started doing this with the very carefully hand-picked sort of cream of the crop of these villages. And it was a wildly successful program, really, really interesting. The ultimate problem, though, is that you still don't have a state you can work with. And our world is arranged in states. And so cultural change can only get you so far. At some point, you need the state to become legitimate and work with the state. And this is a problem that's set for game theory. And the reason I have this up here is because there's lots and lots of um, programs that try to just tweak the problem, right? Let's, let's build some courts here. Let's do some police work here. Let's do a little bit here and there. But if you have a state that fundamentally is built on an elite bargain that's illegitimate, you need to overturn that whole structure of the state, right? If it's the United States in the South in the 1890s, with whites on top, blacks on the bottom, a lot of violence being used to hold them down. You don't change that through little tweaks. You change that through an overhaul of who has power in the system. In America, we didn't change that until 1965, till the Voting Rights Act. You could argue today that there are still problems going on. Um, you're basically moving to a different equilibrium if you're thinking about game theory. So you're jumping the system to a different equilibrium. And that requires radical change. And so in every case where, this, where the system was really broken, I only saw it change through major radical shifts, not through little bits of shifts. It's kind of like if Sisyphus is pushing the rock up the hill, little, little tweaks to the system allow that rock to fall back down. The only way to really get it to stay at the top is to have major change. How does that major change happen? It happened the same way in every single case. Three things had to happen simultaneously, and I think that's why it was so hard to have it happen, why there were, frankly, very few cases to choose from of success in this sphere. The first thing that had to happen was that the illicit actors who had the support of the people had to overstep and lose that support. Now, this actually happened more frequently than not. Usually when insurgents, drug dealers, um, and other bad guys have the support of the people, eventually they use too much violence, and the people get sick of it. And they, but that had to happen first. So they would overstep. Then the people say, okay, we want a legitimate state, but we don't have one. So the next thing that happened was that the people organized. That relied on two preconditions. And you can read this in modernization theory, and I'd read it lots, but I'd never understood why it mattered, which was that um, usually change happens when you have a strong middle class. And I'd always wondered, well, does that mean you need money? What's, what's the driver? What's the middle class so important about? What I realized in this work was the reason the middle class, bless you, was so important was that you needed an educated urban population to organize. And picture a really rural country. You know, you can have organized movements, but no one's going to notice them. I remember during the, um, those rallies about the 99%, I was driving in rural Colorado where I live, and there was one person out there in Moffat, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley, literally one person saying, we are the 99%. And I thought, yeah, you, you are <laughs> definitely in Moffat, Colorado, but not a lot of people are seeing your protest. Right? So middle class matters because it allows an educated urban population to come together and start protesting. This is obviously Martin Luther King in America. These protests, by the way, right now are growing all around the world. So Guatemala has just taken down its government with protests. But one of my colleagues at Carnegie is tracing protests, and they are skyrocketing right now around the world. So you get the bad guys to overstep. You get a middle class, urban, educated population to start protesting and saying, we want a legitimate government. We want things to work better. Third thing is you need a politician who's willing to lead the movement. And this is really important. This is the difference between success and the Arab Spring. Right? It's not enough to have an incohate, leaderless movement that says we want things different. You actually need a leader. And that leader needs to be a politician. They need to be able to make deals. They need to be able to work within a political system. I was only looking at democracies, remember. And those politicians are not always the world's best people. They're not always reformers with a capital R. Often they're a little bit mixed. You know, they have a will to power. And they do the same things in every case, a series of the same things. So this is Georgia's Houses of Justice. One of the things that the politicians do first is centralize power. And in every case they centralized power. And I was really uncomfortable with this conclusion because I come from the human rights community. I really like the idea of human rights, civil rights, that being the path to ending violence. And so I was thinking, why are they centralizing power? Is it a feature or a bug? Can we get rid of it? Do they need it? 
And what I realized was they needed to centralize power so that their threats were taken seriously, so that they could say, hey, we're going to jail you if you do the wrong thing. Um, and they needed to generally sideline their parliaments because usually the drug dealers and the insurgents and the warlords had managed to bring people into parliament who could make laws that were um, favorable to their business enterprises and so on. So they had to sideline parliament. This is very dangerous, obviously. And so if you're a foreigner, America is stepping into a country like this trying to make it better, you want to think about how can you have a thumb on the other side of the scale. When I was working with USAID, they sent me to do a... Um, be a senior advisor to a survey of Honduras to figure out what can we do in Honduras, which had the biggest murder rate in the world at that point. Um, Syria now, I think, has surpassed it, but it's still quite, quite high. And what we saw was the president of Honduras centralizing power in all sorts of ways. And our team was very divided. What do we make of this? And we basically said to the U.S. government, look, you need to set out a series of tests in, in the way that you're giving the aid to see whether are they centralizing power for their own sake to use it in bad ways, or are they centralizing power in order to get rid of the drug cartels and so on. And through a series of well-structured kind of tests with aid, for instance, are they willing to have an independent homicide group to look at the statistics and, and gather statistics so the, the state can't um, fake the statistics of whether things are getting better? Are they willing to have external monitors, things like that? You can start seeing... Are they trying to make it better, or are they centralizing power for its own sake? You have to be really careful. The other thing these politicians all did was they acted quickly. They kept the bad guys on the back foot. So they start doing just radical changes. They all look hyperactive. Some people um, would the, the words that people would use who worked closely with these politicians were not generally favorable. Some would say, oh, I think they're manic depressive, or I think they're on drugs. Um, because they were so hyperactive in the amount of activity they were doing. And the reason for that was a couple, uh, a couple of different reasons. One was they were trying to keep their opponents off guard. They wanted to seize the initiative. They wanted to set the terrain. And so by acting constantly, by constantly doing things, the mafia couldn't regroup. The insurgents couldn't figure out where they were going to be hit next, and so on. So the, the government is just moving very, very quickly. They also started doing symbolic actions which showed the citizens which way the wind was blowing. The, the theory here is that you've got some citizens who are with the government, you have some citizens who are definitely against, and you have a lot in the middle who are waiting to see who's going to win. Right? They don't want to be the one to rat on the organized criminal if that organized criminal is going to be in charge of their neighborhood. And so they're just waiting to see who's going what way. And by doing very public, very concrete, very symbolic things, it starts showing the people, hey, the government's going to win this one. You should be on our side. And so you start seeing these kinds of activities. Um, the, the governments do various other things of that ilk, but those are the top three. The other thing they do are a series of technocratic moves. And these technical moves are basically moves that are used to fight organized crime. And they're part of the organized crime fighting toolkit. And that makes sense, because even if you're fighting insurgency, what you're basically fighting is this problem of state collusion with the criminals. Remember, that's the, the problem that we're trying to solve. And state collusion with criminals is organized crime. So they do things like really tough prison regimes. This is in Sicily. 41 Beasts is the law that um, has 24-hour surveillance on the top mafia dons in Sicily. 24-hour surveillance goes against the European Court of Human Rights um, torture rules. And so 41B sequels tortura is something that is an, a real fight right now in Italy and Europe. Is it a torture regime? Is it not to be under surveillance when you're using the bathroom, when you're asleep all the time? But what they found was that the Sicilian mafia is very famous for communicating with hand gestures, eye blinking, very, very subtle things. And when they didn't have that kind of surveillance, they were actually still running their, um, their activities from the prison when they would have people come without using a word, just by various hand gestures and things. The, um, when I went to see the Flying Squad, which is the anti-mafia squad that's the elite um, police group in this area, it was amazing. They would show these videos of the Sicilian mafia dons trying to run their businesses, and it looked like, um, it, it looked like Japanese no theater or something, just these little tiny gestures, and um, that was conveying quite a bit. So how do you fight it? wiretapping and intelligence so that people don't have to be witnesses um, because witnesses get killed and surveillance doesn't get anyone killed. Um, 
strong prison regimes, um, making sure that your prosecutors and judiciary and police are all working together and that turf fights aren't getting in the way, some restructuring of those kinds of, of mechanisms. Um, really, really good intelligence and intelligence sharing. Those kinds of tools. Again, think about it. You're centralizing power. And now you've got wiretapping tools and surveillance and all of this other stuff going on. This sounds not so good. And I think it's one of the lessons that if this is empirically what happened in every case where things got better, what do we do to make sure that this doesn't make things worse again? That you don't end up empowering autocrats who then start the whole cycle over of insurgency and anger and violence again. And I think the international um, regime has to work and think about this because we help on this a lot. America, as DOJ particularly, is brilliant at the kind of anti-organized crime work that helps um, control these organized criminals. But we are, haven't been so good on the other side of making sure that once a country moves out of this kind of violence, it stays out of this violence and doesn't just recur, as we're seeing in large parts of the Middle East right now. Many states have both of these problems at the same time. So they have a lack of state, and they have too much state in collusion with bad guys, both at the same time. And this is an even bigger issue. Colombia is very common like this. The um, Colombians I was talking to said, Colombia is actually three states at once. It's a 21st century country in the cities. It's a 20th century country in the sort of small, mid-sized towns. And it's a 19th century country, more like America's Wild West, in the rural areas. And we're dealing with all three at once. We're dealing with some state collusion here. We're dealing with not enough state there. The United States in the 1880s was quite similar. You had the West, which was not enough state. You needed to roll out the legitimate state. You had the South, where an elite bargain with the white slaveholders had allowed slavery to sort of retrench under Jim Crow laws in a very different light, but basically legalizing a very, very harsh regime um, under law. And in the municipalities, the Chicago's and New York's of the world, you had really corrupt actors who were political machines who were lodged there. And fighting that required using all these tools at the same time, and it meant you went forward and you went back, and you went forward and you went back. You went from making deals with the, with the violent actors to then unraveling those deals. And that's the way that most of these countries ultimately progressed. They made the deal, they made the elite bargain with the entrenched interests in order to get them to lay down arms. And then they would have to renege on the deals and roll the deals back. In Colombia, they made deals with the paramilitaries that were very sweet deals, where the paramilitaries got amnesty, they got um, really a free ride for all of the violence that they had done. And then the Supreme Court and the um, Constitutional Court said, no, we're actually a democracy. We're going to roll back that, this deal. And while that looked conflictual and was conflictual in the political life of Colombia, it was great from an anti-violence standpoint because it meant you both got the violent actors to lay down their arms and you started to rebuild the legitimacy of the state. And you needed both. Both things had to happen. So what do we do now? We've got protests going on all around the world about illegitimate states right now. Violence is on an uptick after decades of violence going down. Violence is going back up again. We're seeing a very, very difficult world ahead. For outsiders trying to reduce violence, one of the things that I'm going around talking to various governments about is there's a whole set of tools that we can start using. We have to start thinking in terms of designing programs for 50-year cycles. These cycles of building out countries from violence tend to take between 30 and 50 years. But we don't do programming like that in the United States. The World Bank doesn't do programming like that. No Western country does. We do three to five year programs and interventions generally. That's the timeline we think on. So how do you do that kind of, of change cycle? Well, first question, is state part of the problem or is it not part of the problem? Right? We don't think this way generally. When we do security sector assistance and what have you, we tend to assume the state is part of the solution. This is Colombia where the military was under such pressure to get insurgents um, as a body count, that was the count they were using to show that they were winning the fight, that they started kidnapping poor, poor young men from the barrios, killing them, and passing them off as insurgents. That's called the false positive scandal, and it was thousands of poor young men who were recruited, killed, and passed off. If the state is part of the problem, you can't just build out the state, right? You need to start looking to how do you get those popular movements going? How do you work with people? How do you catalyze change on the ground and within the society? Those are the change leaders, not us. And so 
how do you help those people make change within their society? And it requires a whole different way of thinking. USAID in Georgia had an anti-corruption program that was a complete failure because when Shevardnadze, that politician who had been brought in by those warlords, when he came in, the way he decided to bring peace was first of all to get the warlords into, into government, but then he started to hand off other parts of the government to other corrupt actors in order to keep the peace. And so the whole government structure was built on corruption. And it was built on corruption not because Shevardnadze himself was corrupt. He probably was not. Nobody said, all the people I talked to who worked closely with him, nobody accused him of corruption. It was because that was the structure that he had chosen to make everyone be bought into the system and be peaceful. So there was no way he was going to implement an anti-corruption program that he thought might result in civil war breaking out again and real violence in his state. He thought that was much worse. And that's a legitimate way of thinking. Many people thought he was wrong certain point, the violent actors were weaker, and he probably could have done it, but that's not how he thought about it. Anyhow, USAID was pouring money into an anti-corruption program with lawyers and new laws and new committees and all this kind of thing, t typical lawyer-led anti-corruption program. Total failure, if you look at it one way. But if you look at it the other way, the guy who ran the anti-corruption program was a man named David Usupashvili, and he was a young Georgian lawyer. He started the Georgian Young Lawyers Association he really believed in human rights and anti-corruption and the rule of law. And he had been working as Shevardnadze's um, national security assistant, sort of his special assistant. And when he just couldn't bear the regime anymore, he moved over and got this job at USAID. And it let him think about what to do. And when the Rose Revolution happened, he was key to the Rose Revolution. And his Young Lawyers Association was key to changing the whole government structure of Georgia. And then when he saw Saakashvili, the new leader, starting to use those autocratic tools in ways that made him uncomfortable for the rule of law, he actually broke with the revolution, the people that he had put in power, and formed another party that said, no, we're going to stand for the rule of law. And now he's the Speaker of Parliament. And when I interviewed him, he talks about this transformation. And he's, his party, he runs his own party. His wife is actually the head of the party. They both met and fell in love at the Georgia Young Lawyers Association. So for those of you at UVA Law, you can imagine being this, this young guy. And now as Speaker of the Parliament, he and his wife and their party are the kingmaker party in Georgia. And they play a really big role. So was that anti-corruption program a failure? If you look at it as it's our job in the United States to deliver a program that does X or Y, yeah, it was. If you look at it as it's our job in the United States to find the people in the country who have the potential to make change and help them do that at hard points in their lives when they need a job, when they need something to do that's legitimate in a, in a situation where there are very few things that are legitimate for educated people to do. Well, then it was a wild success because we, in a very key point in this person's career, gave him space to think and plan and help build a whole revolution that has really brought a lot more rule of law to Georgia. We also need to change the way we measure, and this is one of the things that I'm talking with USDOD about and also with USAID about, and was just in Europe talking to their aid agencies about. Because if we measure saying, we know what's going to happen, and we can measure it, we can set out all of our activities and measure at point one, point two, point three, then the kinds of programs that are trying to help people on the ground make change look awful. They really look bad, because you never know what that person is going to do and how that trajectory is going to go. And so what you end up doing are things that are much easier to count and often much more problematic, like building court buildings helping um, police have enough handcuffs, things like that, when the state itself is illegitimate and we're actually helping roll out an illegitimate state and fueling more violence. So we need to change the way we measure so that we know we're helping do better work and enabling that better work to happen and not making the program officers afraid that if they do good stuff that's a little less linear in its movement, they'll be rated badly. And it's a hard, that's a hard task, but it's something we're working on. The other thing we can do is enclaves of excellence. The United States did this in um, Colombia. We made really, really good, strong teams of police who were really good at, at their jobs. And as long as they were under the thumb of leaders who are corrupt themselves, they weren't going to be able to do that much. Their, their um, scope of action was going to be constrained. But when their leadership changed and they were able to do more, then they had the skills. And so this is something that, again, on the measurement, if you're trying to measure linearly, it might not look like it's working very well because you have to wait for that leadership change to happen to have the skill, the scope to do the work. But then it can really make a big difference. 
professionalization makes a big, big difference. I was just giving a talk in Pakistan to the Supreme Court there. Um, they've got a great Supreme Court, really strong constitutional level court, British trained and everything, but their lower courts are seen as extremely corrupt and problematic. And so I was basically saying, look, if you at the Supreme Court level help build the professional feeling amongst the lower court judges, you'll, you can make a big difference. And this is one of the ways that police in America started to change in the 1880s that over and over again in Bihar and these other countries, you saw real change was by people in the profession starting to say, hey, I'm not a pawn of political parties. I don't want to be just a thug for hire. I actually want to be part of a profession that has codes, that has norms, that polices itself. The lawyers also do this. They don't want to be just fixers for um, corrupt action. They want to be real lawyers. So this can make a big difference. Leadership requires action. It requires doing. And so picking leaders is not, it's not enough to just take them, pick them, pull them to America, show them around America, which is one of the things that we tend to do. It actually requires helping them practice those skills. And so there's all sorts of better leadership programs that we can start doing. The United States um, military particularly has all of these great leadership programs which it refuses to allow um, any testing on. There's no measurement. We don't know if they're working or not. And I would posit that it would be extremely useful since we're putting so much money into them to start testing whether they're working, start testing whether they're building the relationships they're supposed to be building, and start testing whether as we keep those relationships going over time, are we picking the right people in the military to befriend? And are we helping them learn the action of leadership, not just the theory? Money has to move fast. Like I said, these, these um, people are hyperactive when they get into power. And so when they're in power, things happen really quickly. If the money doesn't keep up, we're, we're not able to help at the moment of transition. If it takes three years for us to program out the money, well, look at what's happening in Syria right now, right, where we had all sorts of programs that were supposed to train people and help people on the ground, and it just couldn't move fast enough for facts on the ground to change. And like I said, the things that work also tend toward autocracy, and that's really dangerous, and so we need to be careful to put a thumb on the other side and make sure that we're not helping a new warlord gain power in a country, but we're actually helping build a stronger country that won't fall back into violence. One of the ways we do that is looking beyond our normal tools of aid and looking particularly to DOJ, which is one of the reasons it's so exciting to talk to JAGs and folks in the law school. Activities like asset seizure um, and other DOJ, the surveillance activities and so on, th that happens in the Department of Justice. Um, this was a slide for for England, where I just came from, where I was talking to them about the problems of the city of London and the money laundering that was going on there, and that it wasn't enough to do anti-corruption programs with their aid. They also had to clean up the city of London, where the Russian oligarchs particularly were putting lots of money into the housing market. Um, same idea. So I'll leave it at that and um, take any questions, and thank you very much. It's a terrific question. So um, on the latter point, I don't think you can be a superpower behind blast walls. And I say this having worked a lot with folks in the military and also with civilians who are putting their lives on the line in these countries. Um, and when I worked at the State Department on the Foreign Affairs Policy Board, I argued that was right in the wake of Benghazi. And um, I argued this there too, that I think our civilian Folks who put themselves in um, positions of danger know what they're doing, and our military certainly knows what they're doing. And you don't want to take unnecessary risks, but you can't lead from behind a wall. Um, you have to have a finger feel for the place. You know, you, you kind of have to just have a sense of what's going on. Um, and to the first part of the question, when, when the government is problematic and you're trying to come up with different ways of, of acting, um, the, can you phrase it again? Yeah, so the, the Right. So 
Exactly, and, and we see this all over the place. Um, I was just teaching a group of students from the African Union and the Egyptians particularly were just, you know, don't come anywhere near us with your aid. Um, one of the best things we can do what, is to localize our aid. So for instance, when I was working in Indonesia, the Asia Foundation has been there. It's an American, it was started by America, and now it's an NGO and it gets money from lots of different places. But it's been there for 50 years. And it's seen by the Indonesians as a local organization because it's been there so long. It's not seen as American. But we can funnel money through that, and then they have a much better finger feel for the place anyway. Um, I think the best, the USAID has set up groups um, called partners groups in lots of different countries. So there's partners Albania and partners Romania. Same kind of idea. I think that's a really smart way of getting money to, to, to these folks. Ultimately, though, this issue of closing space and NGOs and civil society getting um, pushed from their governments and not allowed to have foreign funding, it's a big problem because the reason it's happening is that the governments know that this is the way change happens too, right? It's a, actually a mark of success that there's so much pressure being put on these groups because that's how things happen and, and change. But it's a hard thing to get around. It's, it's another great question. It's a big chicken and egg problem. Um, when we were in the midst of Afghanistan, I remember taking some folks from the White House to meet um, who were trying to push economic development there um, to meet with a group of investors who'd invested in Eastern Europe right after um, the fall of the Soviet Union when it was pretty chaotic there. And the White House folks made their pitch, and the investors just said, why in the world would I put money into Afghanistan when I can get a much better rate of return with much lower risk in one of about 187 other countries. And it was a really hard question to, to fight. I think um, helping small business within those countries is one important way. Remember, middle class doesn't mean rich. You know, these are just people who have an independent source of income from the government and who have enough left over to put their kids in school and so on. So I think that's one way. The other thing is just education. And everywhere I'm going where I'm talking to governments, I'm pushing education. That um, as a key development reform. When people are educated, they can make their own money. They can make their own businesses. They can um, make things happen on their own. Now, really bad governments will use education as a tool, right? They'll help certain parts of the country. They'll hurt other parts of the country, or they'll not give resources here, and they'll give resources there. So it's not a panacea by any means, but I think that's one of the ways that you get around that chicken and egg problem. So one of the things that you see over and over and over again, my husband asks me sometimes when I do this work, like, oh, you know, do you feel like you've, you've come up with something new? And I say, no, no, what I've come up with something is things that people knew 100 years ago, ago and wrote about, and then they knew them again 50 years ago and they wrote about them, and now we're relearning them again. Um, and so if you look at, you know, counterinsurgency strategies that are written in the 1800s, a lot of this is, is in there. Um, there are ways you can facilitate the violence by putting pressure on the violent actors and sort of forcing them to do something more spectacular. If they have competitions, the Israelis have sponsored one bad group 
in the hopes of fracturing another bad group. I don't think that's a great way of doing it. Uh, in fact, I think it's an incredibly dangerous way of doing it, but um, it's been done. Um, I think that generally it is better to wait. That might be frustrating, but in every case that I've studied and in every case I've read about in the literature, they do overstep, and it doesn't take all that long. And the alternatives of sort of pushing it along um, can, can lead to greater violence or more problems if you have multiple groups that you then have to fight because you've tried to, because one of the ways you get a lot of violence is when the groups are fighting amongst themselves, when you have multiple insurgent groups that are fighting amongst themselves for predominance. But you don't really then want to have to fight multiple insurgent groups if, if you don't have to. So probably better to wait. And one of the lessons that comes out again and again and again is that we can't fix it always from the outside. The time is not always right. And that's really hard to hear sometimes. It doesn't mean we can't do anything. You know, we can still do enclave work. We can wait for um, the right people to come along. We can help build the human capital in the country so that when the right time comes, there's a leader and you don't have a revolution that's taken over um, by the old guard. But often we can't make it happen from outside. Yeah. So there's a great RAND study that basically says that wars where there's foreign intervention, they go on much, much longer. They're much harder to end. It's not what I was dealing with. What I was dealing with was a subset of problems where there wasn't that kind of foreign intervention. The closest that happened in my studies was um, Russia and Georgia, where Russia was sort of tearing off bits of the country. Um, but that wasn't key to the violence that was going on inside the country that I was looking at. So I'm afraid it's outside the scope of my study. But I would look at the RAND report, which is a quite good report, um, rather depressing reading. Really, somebody has to be the biggest warlord. You know, somebody, by which I mean, somebody needs to win. And if what you have is an arms race going on in a third country with different outside actors pouring in money, then either you let the other guy win and step back, and that's one way to end the arms race and the violence, but it can have bad repercussions. Or you pile on and hope that you're the winner and that requires political will in America and the Western powers, and that we need to want it more than the other side wants it. And I think rarely do we actually want it more than the other side wants it. And if we don't want it more, then you're just prolonging violence for a longer and longer period of time. Um, and in some ways, that's the story of Vietnam, and it might be the story of Syria right now because of how the policies went. Yeah, so I think this is kind of where we need to start putting on our thinking caps in the way that um, we did with smart sanctions and start coming up with new tools. One obvious way is to support civil society, support monitoring groups, support transparency and accountability. There's only so far that a government can go if there's outside groups keeping tabs on homicide rates, um, looking at campaign financing, all that kind of thing. So transparency alone isn't enough. You really need accountability, so you need both data out there and you need people who are local who can use that data to do stuff with it to hold the government accountable. But that's just obvious. Um, there's certain big data things that we can do to start looking at um, is the government using the surveillance in ways that are more hurtful or more helpful as are judgment calls. Um, and ultimately different parts of our government often come down on different sides. So you'll see um, the Central Intelligence Agency working on the one hand and the DOJ working on the other hand, sometimes on the same case or with the same people, different sides of the coin. Um, it would be nice if we could get our act together. Um, it's hard because there's different incentives. But I think really transparency, accountability, using the big data to get the information and then making sure that the local people have it. And some of this is, is things that we've already signed on to and haven't done. So for instance, the United States has signed on to say, um, our foreign aid should be transparent and our military aid should be transparent. People in the country should know if we're funding their governments and should know how much money we're giving to them so that the parliament can, can use its oversight powers to know where that money's going, and, but we aren't doing it yet. And there's real political reasons, obviously, why we're not doing that. Um, but it's not so great to say, hey, don't be corrupt, get your act together, 
be more accountable, but then we might be pumping millions and millions or even billions of dollars into a country, into its security apparatus or just into its aid world and not telling those people how much that money is and so there's no way they can hold their own governments accountable. That's not so good. There's a Foreign Aid Transparency Act that's going through government right now, bipartisan, um, that would be a nice way to change that. Terrific set of questions. So one thing that was said to me by two different people, by the top mafia prosecutor in, in Italy and also by um, a major police actor in Colombia who had been fighting the Bakrim, which are the criminal groups that after the paramilitaries were disbanded, some of them reformed into these criminal groups that are just doing narco-trafficking and that sort of thing. And what they said was when a state is really weak, they make deals with the strong criminal actors. But when a state starts getting stronger, they start making deals with the weak criminal actors to bring down the strong ones. And it, it's working in Colombia, and it's fascinating how, and it's working in Sicily as well, and it's really smart. So at first, you have to deal with the strong ones because you have no powers, right? You're, you're just too weak to do anything. But then a good state needs to start building up its own abilities, needs to start building up its intelligence, its surveillance, its ability to um, prosecute people. As it does that, it can start making deals with the weak guys against the big guys. And this is very um, concrete, right? So the Colombian um, state actors will get intelligence from a smaller criminal group of smaller Bakrim that will help them bring down the bigger one. Then they bring down the smaller one. So you can't stop there because then you have collusion again with another criminal actor. But you get the intelligence, you bring down the harder to, to bring down one with the uh, collusion of the little one. The little one thinks that they're going to step into that vacuum, but then you act pretty quickly and take that one out. And in Colombia, it's working very well, and the um, lifespan of a criminal within a Bakrim organization to be free and not in jail has been dropping really, really steadily. I think it's around nine months now, but it's been going really far down as they start colluding with the weak against the strong. Same with the mafia. There's, there tends to be mafia wars between the different families. And instead of working with the strongest mafia family, if you start working with the weakest to get the intelligence against the stronger ones, you bring down the stronger one, and then you start um, bringing down the weaker ones. But it, it requires a state that wants to do the, the um, wants to do it. it, doesn't want to collude. With them. Sorry, for China to help with this foreign aid. It's a great question. Um, I mean, China right now is in the midst of one of the biggest anti-corruption crackdowns ever. And there's a lot of us on the outside who are saying, is this real, is this not real? What's clear is that she is centralizing power. And as I'm saying, that is a step toward real um, anti-corruption action and really getting control of the state. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the reason it's happening. And there can be multiple reasons that something is happening. Um, so what China's doing internally is interesting and, and somewhat opaque right now. Um, what they're doing externally is a little less opaque and a, a little less easy to deal with, which is that you basically now have a kind of Cold War situation with the United States and Europe on the one side and China taking the place of the Soviet Union on the other side, where China's going in and giving money to governments with no strings attached in very opaque ways. 
and then the United States starts feeling like, oh, we're going to lose control of our client state to China. And so we'll give more money, we'll give more arms, we won't have as many strings attached either because we don't want this country, be it Ghana, for instance, where I was doing work there, um, or a lot of Africa, actually, parts of Latin America, et cetera. Um, we don't want them to go to the other side, and so we'll give more aid. And so what's happening is kind of a lowering of the, of the um, barriers to more autocratic action and more authoritarian action by these governments overseas because we in Europe don't want to police them too hard, and China wants other things from them, which aren't necessarily a rule of law-based state. So no, no real good guys in this situation. But it would be terrific to have more help and to do this together. And China has certainly been a very positive help on things like piracy, right? So there's definitely ways where if our interests are aligned, we can collude for a better world that's safer and less violent. It's just a matter of getting the interests aligned correctly. And foreign aid right now, they're, they're not aligned. It's more of an arms race. Sure. Well, I don't want to say that humanitarian aid isn't working. So if you've got a humanitarian situation, an earthquake in Nepal, humanitarian aid is doing a great job. Um, it's just that for this issue of violence, our aid apparatus isn't really set up to deal with it. Yeah, no, fair point, fair point. So. Some of our aid is still being used well. The United States actually gives a lot of our aid to civil society groups, and we're pretty good at that. And while our failures sort of are trumpeted in big headlines, what I, what I found in all of my work actually is that um, the Europeans are much better at planning their programs. They're much smarter at all of the sort of thinking part of it. Ours are very bureaucratic and so on. But on the ground, American programs often come out better um, in terms of their outcomes, that the, the people take more initiative on the ground and sort of uh, gain a little space in between what the terms of reference are supposed to be and what they're actually doing. So it's a complicated situation on the ground. Some of them work. But in terms of the other programs, for instance, in the DOJ, um, one of my colleagues, Sarah Chase, writes a lot about corruption and the issue of corruption as a national security threat. And she was looking at who brings the big cases on um, when there's been a corrupt actor who's laundering money through the United States and we want to freeze those assets. Who brings those cases? It turns out that it's a fairly low-level employee in the Department of Justice who even makes the decisions about what cases to bring and that they find out about what decisions to make based on going to a conference and hearing that there's some illicit actor who might be using the U.S. banking system. Well, gosh, that's a pretty strategic thing to have a pretty low-level person doing. What if we could elevate that tool up in the way that with smart sanctions, we now have the ability at the highest levels of government to say, we don't want Putin doing what he's doing in X country. We are going to have visa waivers on the top oligarchs in that country. We're not going to let their kids get into college in the United States. We're going to freeze their assets in certain places. Those are all tools that could be real low-down bureaucratic tools, but if you raise them to the level of state, you can start putting them together, and that's what our smart sanctions regimes are. And what I found in this work was that money, asset seizure, fighting money laundering, cutting off the U.S. banking system, is really important. And um, that top mafia prosecutor in Sicily said when he goes to prosecute a, a top mafioso for 20 years, 10, 20, 30 years to put them in jail, they often don't even bother to bring a lawyer, that they expect to be put in jail. It's part of the kind of mafia system, and they've got a whole welfare system where they take care of your family, they have um, ways to run their businesses and so on. It's fine. It's part of doing business. But if the Italian state starts going after their assets, they bring four or five lawyers. Because if their assets get seized or stopped, then all of a sudden they lose all face. They can't run their businesses. Their stature falls. Their family will be hurt by that. Could even be killed by another mafia family. So it really matters. So one of the things I'm saying is start using our asset seizure laws, our money laundering laws, um, fighting those cases that where a business person is being used to put money into the U.S. real estate market. You know, we're getting big bubbles in our real estate markets in different places. Vancouver is too, and so is um, London with this kind of illicit funding because it's easier to launder money through real estate. 
start using those kinds of tools and bringing them up to the level of state so that we can look at a country that we want to change, like the Ukraine, and say, okay, the Ukraine has a lot of people who want to change, and they have a lot of entrenched invested interests who are trying to keep their hands on those assets. What can we do to start freezing the assets that we think are illicit, to start bringing cases, start making life hotter for the vested interests, so the local people can then bring the country about that they want on the ground?